welcome to Essential Ethics, brought to you by the Children's Bioethics Centre at the Royal Children's Hospital, Melbourne. I am your host, Professor John Massey, Clinical Director of the Children's Bioethics Centre. This podcast is taken from our 2019 National Children's Bioethics Conference. The theme of the conference was respecting different perspectives. In this session of the conference, Dr. Tricia Prentice presents a newborn with multiple congenital abnormalities and uses the case to examine the limits of the zone of parental discretion. Tricia is a consultant neonatologist at the Royal Children's Hospital and member of the Children's Ethics Committee. The decision to embark on active treatment for a sick newborn infant with multiple abnormalities is made in the best interests of the child but may in reality constitute harm to the child. The distinction between best interest and harm is not a sharp line. It's another zone, the twilight zone. Trisha explores the twilight zone and considers the impact on working in this zone on both parents and staff. Today I want to talk about some of the challenges that we face at the edge of the zone of parental discretion. And I want to ask you to think about how we can better support clinicians who are working in this domain. Now, I'm going to frame this discussion around the case of James. This is a fictitious case, but one that uh, reflects some of the common challenges that we face within the neonatal intensive care unit. Now, James was born prematurely at 34 weeks. His mother had received minimal antenatal care, but when he was born by normal vaginal delivery, it was clear that he had multiple anomalies, including complex cardiac disease, esophageal atresia with a distal tracheoesophageal fistula, which means that his esophagus or feeding tube is incomplete, and he has a connection between his esophagus and his trachea, or his windpipe. He also had bladder extrophy with ambiguous genitalia, so he lacks a layer of skin to the lower part of his abdomen, and his bladder is completely exposed. His genitalia are also incompletely developed. Additionally, he also has an imperforate anus, so he lacks an opening through which to pass meconium. Now, James was intubated and ventilated and then transferred to us here at the Royal Children's Hospital for consideration about further investigation and management. Now, it's evident as soon as he walks in our door or is transferred to our unit that he's going to require multiple complex operations. Now, each one of these anomalies, when considered in isolation, may be considered to be repairable, but each will have their own set of complex morbidities associated with it. Some of these operations are also time critical. So, for example, James would require an operation to ligate or to disconnect the connection between his trachea and his esophagus, ideally within the next 24 to 48 hours, to try and protect his lungs. Within this same time frame, we'd also want to place a gastrostomy in order to prevent his stomach or his intestines from, from perforating. So we need to decide what is the most appropriate management for James. Is ongoing intensive care or ongoing life-sustaining therapies in James's best interests? Or should we actually be redirecting his care to palliative care and withdrawing his life-sustaining interventions? And how much say should his parents have? Now, in order to help us think about how to approach these decisions, we can refer to the zone of parental discretion. So we acknowledge that where um, 
where decisions are maybe less than ideal, but where it's not obvious that the patient is going to come to any harm, then we acknowledge that the parents have a, um, an ethically permissible role in that decision, which is shown in the white. But in the black zone, in the harm zone, we are ethically obligated to act in the patient's interest, irrespective of the patient's or the parent's wishes or concerns. And we do that in order to protect the patient from harm. Now we're going to assume today that where decisions are within the zone of parental discretion, that we as clinicians engaged in shared decision making. That is, we try to ascertain what the parent's goals and values are and try to incorporate them into our understanding of what's, what treatment plan is going to be in the patient's best interests. It doesn't mean, though, that information is necessarily conveyed in a neutral manner. So particularly as decisions get closer to that edge of harm, then we may be more directive in the way that we communicate to families. But still, where there's significant clinical uncertainty, we tend to err on the side of the zone of parental discretion. Now, in acute care settings, this means that we often find ourselves practicing in the very uncomfortable outer rim of the zone of parental discretion, where there may be some debate about whether ongoing life-sustaining interventions still remains in the zone of parental discretion, or whether it's actually extending into harm. We're going to refer to this as the twilight zone. Now, the twilight zone is this mysterious zone that keeps clinicians awake at night, as we fear causing harm. It has the power to divide, divide treating teams, and it can also shorten the career lifespan of the clinician involved. But unfortunately, you won't find the, the twilight zone in Ethics for Dummies. But I am hoping that it will make an appearance in version two of the Bioethics Centre when doctors and parents disagree. And I'll be referring to the work of this wonderful book um, throughout this talk. Now, there will be many experienced clinicians who feel quite strongly that perhaps life-sustaining interventions actually falls within the zone of harm rather than in the zone of parental discretion. But in order for us to escape this twilight zone, then we need to be really clear about two things. First of all, how do we actually define harm? And how much do parents need to actually understand in order for the decision to remain within their discretion? Now, when we think about harm, we think about the physical, the emotional, and the psychological aspects of harm. And the authors of the zone of parental discretion have referred to harm in the broader sense as a setback to interests. Now, in the healthcare setting, this can include a wide range of interests, including being free from pain, having good physiological function, maintaining a sense of bodily integrity, being able to attend school or the prospect of being able to attend school in the future, being able to live at home rather than being stuck in a hospital bed, and being able to develop meaningful relationships. Now, some of these interests may be affected more than others. And so the well-being of the child reflects the overall profile of these individual interests. And so the, the authors of the zone of parental discretion have likened it to a bit like a mixer board, where the different dials refer to individual interests. 
but make up an overall picture of the overall well-being of the child. So if we look at the treatment option for child for patient or treatment A, you may see that the different interests may be affected to different levels. But we can compare that treatment to other options, such as option B. And the overall profile can be compared. The degree of harm to the child or the setback can be determined by comparing one treatment pathway to another. But at times, like the case of James, we must consider whether survival is actually in his interests, whether it's a greater harm to survive than to die. How much do the dials or the interests need to be reduced on those welfare file profiles in order to think about that actually survival is not in his interests? Now, where there's a single pathology with a well-researched intervention, then we may be in a better position to imagine what the outcome may be. So how much those individual interests will change on our mixer board. So for those who grew up with uh, Looney Tunes, you may consider that if Wiley Coyote steps off a cliff, then he has a 100% chance of survival and maybe a 30% chance of attrition. But if we return to James, then we are left trying to weigh up the additive burden from multiple insults across a wide range of interests, from the interest of being pain-free with each operation or intervention and ventilated day, to anticipating the longer-term neurodevelopmental outcomes and his psychological welfare. There may be a broad range of possible outcomes. Some of those outcomes may be ex more acceptable to James's parents than others. And with multiple anomalies, we are left thinking about whether there may be greater error in describing what James's future may look like to his family. Again, for children like James, each of his anomalies may be curable when considered in isolation, but we need to think about what that well-being profile needs to look like before we consider that survival is no longer in his interests. Now sometimes as clinicians we can be fearful of starting down a pathway of no return. Sometimes time and investment put into each decision can make it difficult for clinicians and families alike to kind of review our treatment plans when we're faced with a new decision. It's not uncommon for us to hear as clinicians from families that, you know, he's got through it before against the odds. He'll do it again. But we fear reaching a point when the long-term complications become clearer, but there's no longer a window of opportunity for the possibility of stopping life-sustaining interventions, at least at that point. Now again, many will accept that where there is uncertainty, we err on the side of family discretion or parental discretion. But what if they knew now what they'll know then? Are we asking families the impossible to imagine how their child's interests will be impacted or affected and what the future for their child will look like? If they had a crystal ball, would they still choose the same option? And how much do we need families to be able to articulate their understanding in order for the decision to remain within the zone of parental discretion? Now, if we provided you with a quick snapshot of some of the communication that went on with James's family. A very condensed conversation may look a bit like this. The doctor saying, 
We're very concerned about James. Yes, we'll pray. Can you tell me what you understand about James's condition? Well, his feeding tube isn't connected, he has multiple holes in his heart, and he doesn't have a bottom through which he can poo. But what are your hopes for James? Well, that God will provide a miracle. We know he's very sick and you believe that James may die, but we will pray. Now we can see from this very brief snapshot that James's family value his survival. They value his life. We also see that they value their faith, but we don't yet have any idea if they understand the ongoing burdens that James will experience if his care is, is continued. And any further attempts to explore what they think his future may look like is shut down with a statement, we will pray. Now, with time and established relationship, then we, we hope that we can overcome that. We hope that we may gain a better understanding of what James's family believe his future may look like, what is meaningful to them. But as we've already heard, some of the decisions around James's treatment is also time critical. We don't necessarily have the luxury of time. If James's care is to be redirected to palliative care, then we'd prefer not to put him through any painful procedures or operations unnecessarily. So if we're unable to establish whether James's family understand the impact of ongoing intensive care or life-sustaining interventions, then how will this impact on his future interests or how should this impact on the zone of parental discretion? Assuming we've been clear and balanced in our communication, should we give the parents the benefit of the doubt and consider that the decision remains within the zone of parental discretion? Or should we in fact consider it to be within the zone of harm? Perhaps some similarities can be drawn um, between informed consent. We've heard informed consent being discussed a little bit earlier on in the afternoon. We generally accept that meaningful informed consent requires that an individual has a capacity to understand relevant information, including the nature of the situation, what the diagnosis, the prognosis is, and the potential benefits and risks. And we need them to be able to articulate that, whether it's signing a form or stating it explicitly or implicitly. But perhaps the starting point is different. So informed consent, no intervention will actually occur unless we have consent, whether it's explicit or implicit. But in the twilight zone, we continue intensive life-sustaining interventions until we have consent, whether explicit or implicit, to withdraw life-sustaining interventions. So while the patient may come to harm in both cases if consent isn't provided, in the first case, harm primarily seems to be coming from the underlying medical condition. But in the twilight zone, clinicians may feel responsibility for actively causing harm to the patient until a consensus is reached to redirect life-sustaining cares. Now, when I did my PhD looking at moral distress of clinicians caring for preterm babies born less than 28 weeks, one of the common things, or in 16% of the cases, clinicians said that they felt moral distress due to parental factors or their role in decision-making. That is, that clinicians felt that they were constrained to provide ongoing life-sustaining interventions against the interest of the patients 
when they felt that parents couldn't understand the decisions that, they were being, that were being made or didn't have the capacity to make those decisions. But what do we mean when we say that a parent lacks understanding? Sometimes there will be information overload as we endeavour to communicate under highly stressful situations. At times, there may be a denial of the situation or for false hope or beliefs that bring into question the rationality of the decisions being made. But perhaps most commonly, our own cognitive bias can lead us into thinking that if parents choose differently from what we think, then suddenly they can't understand. So when we say that parents don't understand, we need to think about which category do we actually mean? It doesn't actually make any difference to the zone of parental discretion. To some degree, perhaps all these options are modifiable by improved communication. But where a decision is a false belief or truly fixed, then perhaps we're, I would argue, more justified in considering the decision to be in the zone of harm rather than in the zone of parental discretion. Now, in the zone of parental discretion, the burdens of decision-making can be incredibly high. They can affect the well-being of the patient, the family, and clinicians alike. Making these decisions aren't easy, and it can feel incredibly uncomfortable. So I want to leave you with a question of how can we assist physicians stuck, or clinicians stuck within the twilight zone? As it currently stands, the zone of parental discretion can't clearly demarcate between what is harm and what is not harm. That work is left for us to do. And while it may be reasonable to leave the default decision to the clinicians about what is harm, perhaps we need to work harder at establishing what are meaningful outcomes to family and society, given that they are the ones who are left living with the burdens of those decisions. We need to support clinicians in developing their communication skills to be able to take their time to be able to understand parents' hopes, their values, their goals, their fears, to learn how to pace conversations even under time-critical situations, but also to be able to, be able to assert when decisions are erring towards the side of harm. The twilight zone can also be an incredibly destructive place and it can divide a well-meaning and passionate team. So we need to find ways to acknowledge the challenges and support staff who are trying to navigate their way out of the twilight zone. So I want to open up the discussion to you all to, open, to have a discussion about how we can best help clinicians stuck within the twilight zone. And I look forward to hearing your comments. Thank you. I'm sure there'll be um, a few questions from the audience as they digest that, that um, wonderful talk. John? Trish, thank you uh, for that. Trish, just towards the end, you, you said that clinicians have to determine sort of what, what harm is, but, but actually the parents are also contributing to that conversation and what harm looks like to them. So it sort of depends a little bit about who's driving the ship there. Do you want to make some more comments? 
Yeah, thanks, John, for that distinction. Um, I guess I'm thinking about more the situations where it is getting close to that outer rim, um, where we as clinicians are concerned about whether the decision actually is entering into the zone of harm. So you're right that quite often there will be families have bring to the table different values and sometimes something that we may consider to be incredibly reasonable, such as resuscitating a 28-weeker. There will be some families who aren't happy with that. They're not happy to accept the level of disability that comes with having a 28-weeker, even though it's our standard of care to provide that ongoing care and resuscitation. The Twilight Zone, or what I'm talking about today, speaks to more the edge where we're concerned that ongoing therapy is actually not in the patient's interest, where we're concerned that it is going to be harmful. Um, and that's if we can't find ways of being able to draw a clear line of distinction, then it means that we're left treating patients with this uncomfortable feeling that we're going to be regretting the results of our decisions later on down the track. At the time they're making about the consequences, potential consequences, and of course they come to know it because they experience it. So at the start it's theoretical, although we've seen it, mm. but they come to know it later. But one group that I've been reflecting on are the patients that we've looked after in the palliative care service who've had two or three children affected by the same condition. And my reflection would be that with the second or the third child, they almost invariably want less intervention. And I think potentially a fruitful area of study, very difficult, but could contribute then to our counselling of, of families. I, I just was reflecting on that group. Thank you, Jenny. Um, and I agree. I think um, a lot of the community are fairly ignorant of what we do at times and what happens within the neonatal intensive care unit and in our acute care settings. Um, I think if they saw the reality at times of what we put children through, then perhaps it would open up a discussion about what is reasonable, um, what levels of burden and suffering are we happy to accept. Um, but we need to be willing to be open and have some of those challenging conversations and think about how we can communicate that with the rest of the community. Thank you, Tricia. Um, I want to bring up a, a, an aspect of the parents which might, might contribute to the twilight zone. And this is the, it's a bit like Danny was talking about before, that. Those parents who are a bit more like us, perhaps more educated, under, we think they understand more, might have a clearer picture of what might lie ahead just through their general understanding. And those parents that we do see who, who we, we're concerned about their capacity to really cope with these issues. And you gave a little implication of this when you said that this mother hadn't had much antenatal care, so that raises that, that type of issue in your mind. So. I think this is a really ethically difficult situation and, and, and I think we do make, in the end, different decisions are made for families where we feel that they're more competent or more highly competent than some other families who may be very vulnerable in lots of ways. So would you consider that, that part of it to be part of the twilight zone that you're sometimes thinking about? Um, I think that's a really good question. I think, I think in reality we see the whole spectrum. So your question is pointing to does kind of socioeconomic status, education level, how much does that influence some of our subjective 
um, opinions about harm, and there's there's no doubt it does. If we know that a patient's that a parents are stating that they're wanting to put up a child for adoption, they don't feel like they've got the capacity to care for the child, but they're not wanting us to redirect care, then that makes it very difficult for us as clinicians, and certainly it does factor into our decision-making about harm for that child, because a child who has multiple anomalies, who's within a foster care environment, we know that that's not a good outcome um, as a general rule. Um, I would say, though, that I think we see these challenges right across the socioeconomic spectrum, though, and across the education levels. So there are some families who are incredibly educated, and in fact, sometimes that's more difficult because they're spending so much time researching all the options, and they've seen one case report about a particular baby who has received such and such therapy, and they want that. Um, so we, we see it across everyone. We run out of time now, so thank you again, Trish, for a thought-provoking talk. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the team at Essential Ethics. This podcast was made possible by the generous support of the Friends of the Children's Bioethics Centre Auxiliary. The podcast was recorded at the Royal Children's Hospital. If you like the podcast, please leave us a review and tell your colleagues. If you would like to know more about the activities of the Children's Bioethics Centre at the Royal Children's Hospital, including our annual conference, visit our website at www.rch.org.au forward slash bioethics. Essential Ethics. Be inspired. Be inspired.